ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's the 22nd of December. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Today, the flood cleanup continues in far north Queensland as the Prime Minister announces more support for those who've lost their homes. And Australia's on the road to stricter vehicle emissions. Health experts say they could save lives. The type of pollution we're talking about, you can't smell or see, you know, compared to sort of the dark satanic mills of 200 years ago in industrial Europe. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in Cairns inspecting the damage and announcing more funding for victims of the catastrophic flooding triggered by Cyclone Jasper. The federal government's also reassuring those without insurance they won't be forgotten. More than a 1,000 homes have been destroyed in far north Queensland and the remote community of Kawanyama remains on flood alert. Rachel Hayter reports. The Indigenous community of Woodrell Woodrell, 170 kilometres north of Cairns, has been uprooted by this flooding catastrophe. These traditional owners are at the PCYC in Cooktown, further north. I got nowhere to stay. Everything is all underwater. We're refugees at the moment, mate. And ex-tropical cyclone Jasper is still bringing dangerous rain. Emergency crews are on standby in Kawanyama in Cape York, with flooding expected over the coming days. The Queensland Fire and Emergency Services Deputy Commissioner is Kevin Walsh. Police and emergency services are in location there and the Mayor is keeping a very close eye on the river levels. There are resources in place and there are plans in place. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is in Cairns today inspecting the damage there and meeting with victims. He's announced more funding to help with the recovery. There's an initial package, for example, $25 million for primary producers, $25 million for small business. Uh, Each of the local government areas will receive just a $1 million uh, top-off payment. The federal government is also providing an additional $5 million for advertising for tourism operators. Federal Assistant Treasurer and Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones says the government is also monitoring issues with insurance claims. There's a lot of people up there who don't have insurance or who might be underinsured um, and we're working through what we can do to assist those people. The Assistant Treasurer notes that insurers globally are starting to factor in the impact of severe weather associated with climate change and Australia is more affected than most. He's also tried to clear up customer concern about a 48-hour window to access a $10 billion federal government reinsurance pool after the Weather Bureau declares a cyclone over, given most of this damage happened after that time frame. That arrangement, he says, is between the government and insurers, not insurers and customers. There's been a little bit of mischief going around um, not by the majority of insurers, but by some of them, trying to muddy the waters and leave the impression that um, the reinsurance pool is going to impact people's eligibility for claims. That is simply not true. Stephen Jones says the government has agreed to review the scheme to ensure it's operating as intended, but insurers can still access global reinsurance markets for additional capital. 
Kylie McFarlane is the Chief Operating Officer of Climate Operations and Strategy at the Insurance Council of Australia. She's backed the Assistant Treasurer's comments. It's completely correct. The reinsurance bill has absolutely nothing to do with a policyholder's ability to lodge a claim, have that claim assessed and have it paid based on that assessment. At the moment, there are 4,600 claims associated with tropical cyclone Jasper and the flooding that followed. Most are for home and contents. Kylie McFarlane won't speculate on the cost of this event yet, but says they'll have a better picture by the end of next week. It's a difficult one to say at this point because the event is actually still unfolding. John O'Sullivan is the Chief Executive of Experience Co and the Chair of Tourism Tropical North Queensland. He's emphasised that 90% of tourism experiences are still operational from this weekend. One operator in particular had 500 cancellation emails over the course of 24 hours. He says the region has already lost 300,000 tourists and the best thing Australians can do to support far north Queensland is visit. Rachel Hayter reporting. Lawyers for Bruce Lehrman have told the federal court Brittany Higgins' evidence can't be relied on as they make their final submissions in his defamation case against Network 10 and journalist Lisa Wilkinson. The former Liberal staffer is suing after the Project TV program aired an interview with Ms Higgins in which she alleged she'd been raped by a colleague in Parliament House. Mr Lehrman has always maintained his innocence and a criminal trial in the ACT last year collapsed after juror misconduct with no findings against him. Patrick Bell is following the case and joined me a short time ago. Patrick, how have Mr Lehrman's lawyers summarised Brittany Higgins' evidence? Well, they've said that Brittany Higgins has made a number of assertions that aren't true and have cast doubt on her overall credibility and effectively said there's uh, no part of her evidence that can be relied on at all. Lawyers for Network 10 had conceded yesterday that there had been successful credit attacks on Brittany Higgins and pointed to a number of inconsistencies which she had accepted in the witness box. But Mr Lehrman's barrister Stephen Wybrow is really uh, spending quite a bit of time highlighting this because this case uh, in terms of whether Network 10 has proved the substantial truth of its reporting comes down to an assessment of credibility given that uh, the level of Uh, independent evidence is uh, somewhat limited. And so they have taken uh, Justice Michael Lee to some of the various people that they argue she has told mistruths to, uh, including uh, her former chief of staff, Fiona Brown, her former close friend and intimate partner, Ben Dillaway, various police officers and federal agents, and also uh, in the draft manuscript of her book. There was some discussion of this while she was uh, in the witness box about stories that she had told in that book which weren't borne out by some of the facts, and Miss Higgins sought to downplay how significant that was. But nonetheless, uh, Stephen Wybrow pulling all of that together Together to cast serious doubt, in their view, on Ms Higgins' credibility. And the court's also been taken back to CCTV footage on the night of the alleged rape in 2019. Why do Mr Lehrman's lawyers say that's important? 
Well, the CCTV footage of the pair at the dock, which is the Canberra pub they were at on the night, has been used by Network 10 to argue that Mr Lehrman was trying to get Miss Higgins drunk and that he had deliberately concealed buying two drinks for her. Mr Lehrman's team are arguing that there was no effort to deliberately conceal and that uh, he's quite clearly depicted buying two drinks for Brittany Higgins. Uh, But they've also gone to various parts of that to demonstrate that there were other people there that night who were encouraging Miss Higgins to drink, passing her a drink or buying her drinks. And in light of that, the argument is that Bruce Lehrman uh, didn't do anything particularly untoward. And Stephen Wybrow has sought to downplay the suggestion that it's indicative of intent to commit a sexual assault if someone is buying someone drinks or or spending a lot of time with them. And this uh, came after quite an uh, extraordinary opening that Mr Wybrow had given where he reflected on the environment in which these allegations were made. He described a virus of madness in his words that has spread across the country from Ms Higgins' allegations and led to a scenario where the usual rules of subjudice and due process went out the window in his words. And part of that, he says, is demonstrated by the notion that seemingly innocuous decisions and and uh, actions uh, have been argued uh, as intent to commit an alleged sexual assault. And so that's also been a, a critical focus of his closing address so far. Patrick Bell reporting. To the war in Gaza now, and the United Nations says the risk of famine in the territory is growing each day. Israel's war against Hamas continues. The warning comes as a UN Security Council resolution to pause the fighting so more aid can be delivered is delayed again. After intense talks over the wording of the resolution, the United States, which holds veto power, has won the changes it wanted and says it can now support the proposal. Amber Jacobs reports. There's renewed hope for a pause in the war, with the US ambassador to the UN saying Washington plans to support a new draft resolution to stop the fighting in Gaza. We have worked hard and diligently over the course of the past week to come up with a resolution that uh, we can support. And we do have that resolution now. We're ready to vote on it. The vote had been delayed just hours before it was meant to take place. Areas of contention this time appeared to be the delivery of aid, specifically a proposal to have a UN mechanism to monitor aid into Gaza. The US expressed concerns it would take away Israel's control of the screening process. But Linda Thomas-Greenfield has now indicated the US will be supporting a new draft. It's a resolution that will bring humanitarian assistance to those in need, and we're ready to vote for it. The wording had already been modified to call for a suspension rather than a cessation of hostilities after the US used its veto power earlier this month to block a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire. And on the ground, the humanitarian crisis is growing more dire by the day. In the morgue of the NASA hospital in southern Gaza, workers wrapped the corpses of people killed in Israeli airstrikes in white cloth. Some of the bodies are badly mutilated and staff are struggling to identify the dead. 
Only those that have been identified can go for burial and will ultimately be included in the Gaza Health Ministry's official death toll. And thousands of people are at risk of famine. That's according to the report by the United Nations-backed Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, or IPC. It's found the entire 2.3 million population of Gaza is now facing crisis levels of hunger. It's declared the situation catastrophic. Arif Hussein is World Food Programme Chief Economist and says the report confirms their worst fears. About 577,000, meaning more than half a million people, are already in catastrophic levels of hunger, meaning they're essentially starving. And while trucks from Egypt have been bringing essential supplies and food into the Strip, Arif Hussein says it's only 10% of what's needed. We will be looking at a famine in the next six months. Meanwhile, the UK's Foreign Secretary David Cameron has been speaking with Egyptian leaders in Cairo, where he's called for all hostages held by Hamas to be released and for more aid to be delivered to the territory. What we need is a sustainable ceasefire where Hamas is no longer able to threaten Israel with, with rockets and with terrorism. In the meantime, I'm all in favour of pauses in the fighting so we can get aid in and hostages out. The head of Hamas has also been meeting with Egyptian officials in the capital. It initially sparked hopes of a deal to release more hostages, but Hamas says it won't discuss more hostage prisoner swaps until Israel agrees to end hostilities. Amber Jacobs reporting. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. Well, health experts are warning another COVID wave may be imminent as a new strain circulates in the community. The World Health Organisation says JN1 spreads quickly, but its symptoms aren't worse than those of other variants we've seen. Once again, though, vaccinations are being encouraged. Fatima Alumi has more. It's that time of year again when a surge in COVID-19 cases could easily disrupt your Christmas plans. A new variant, while not causing severe disease, is spreading rapidly and posing a renewed risk for vulnerable Australians. Within two months, we're spread around 41 countries in the world. Professor Catherine Bennett is the Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin University. This new variant they're calling JN1 is much more transmissible and that is here in Australia. It's been here since the start of November at least. We don't know whether that means we'll see a big additional wave or whether it just means our case numbers won't come down and this will cause this to roll along. The World Health Organization has classified the new JN1 subvariant as a variant of interest because of its rapidly increasing spread. And according to health experts, COVID cases in Australia are at their highest since the winter peak. New South Wales Health has reported an increase in infections in the run-up to Christmas, especially among young children and adults under the age of 50. While in Queensland, the state's chief health officer says there's been a rise in COVID and influenza cases this month. Around 300 people have been hospitalised for COVID, with another 70 being treated for influenza. There's a range of boosters on offer, including a new monovalent or single component vaccine called XBB 1.5. 
But Professor Bennett points out not everyone's eligible. So if people know they've had an infection within the last six months, they wouldn't yet be eligible again. And if you're not sure about your eligibility based on your risk profile, that's when you should talk to your doctor. The booster's not recommended for those under 17 and there are different recommendations for adults aged between 18 and 64 with no underlying health conditions. Australia introduced the new booster shots earlier this month and experts say they help protect against the subvariants currently spreading around the country. Professor Robert Boy is an infectious diseases paediatrician at the University of Sydney. We have sufficient immunity to Omicron already from both vaccines and natural infection that this one won't pose a risk other than to the very vulnerable, the elderly, the multiple medically impaired people in nursing homes or people who are disabled. He says these vulnerable people should seriously consider getting another jab soon. They're eligible for one. It's safe, it's effective. They would benefit from having a booster. Professor Boy also says many people have become complacent when it comes to warding against the virus. I do worry about the minority of people who've given up on COVID. COVID loves a crowd and where crowds are, it will spread. And if you're vulnerable, you're still at risk. University of Sydney infectious diseases expert Professor Robert Boy, Fatima Alumi, with that report. The federal government has announced new fuel quality and noxious emissions standards will come into force in late 2025. The rules aim to reduce pollution from cars and trucks, which health researchers say contribute to thousands of premature deaths each year. Oliver Gordon reports. Pollution from motor vehicles has long been a worry for health experts. Associate Professor Lou Irving, a respiratory physician at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, has tracked its impact for years. There's very strong data that traffic pollution causes around 11,000 premature deaths in Australia a year. The federal government is now planning a crackdown on high-polluting vehicles. From December 2025, it'll impose tougher rules, requiring new vehicles to limit the amount of nitrogen oxide carbon monoxide and particulate matter they emit. There'll also be stricter standards for the petrol going into our cars. For Associate Professor Irving, the move is long overdue. It will make a real difference by um, having standards for new vehicles and improved standards for some forms of petrol. Crossbench MP Dr Monique Ryan was a doctor before going into politics. It's part of the reason she's backing the changes too. Every time there's a a spike in air pollution, heart attacks and respiratory illnesses in this country go up. But when it comes to the way the federal government regulates vehicle pollution, she says there's another issue that's more pressing. She says fuel efficiency standards, which are different to the noxious fuel emission standards we've been talking about so far, are desperately needed. Fuel emission standards are important and we need them and these changes are long overdue and they're certainly welcomed. But what is really, really overdue is the fuel efficiency standards, which many of us have been pushing for from the government and the government has been promising for a long time as well. Fuel efficiency standards track the amount of CO2 coming out of the tailpipe of vehicles. As it stands, Australia and Russia are among only a handful of developed nations without them. It means EV manufacturers are less inclined to import into Australia 
making it harder for motorists here to get their hands on an EV. The Australian government released its electric vehicle strategy earlier this year, signalling fuel efficiency standards are on the way. Chief Executive of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, Tony Webber, says the industry is expecting they'll be released early next year. Well, they're now talking about the first quarter of next year. That, that is fine. We should have had something in place 15 years ago. In the meantime, he's urging governments across the country to consider the impact of a surge in EV use in coming years. Many Australians will be going on holidays from this weekend. They'll go to coastal towns, which will have relatively small populations the vast majority of the year, but may swell dramatically in January. How do we recharge all those holiday cars in January in coastal towns. Unless we have a holistic solution, people are not going to move to low emission technologies. As for the noxious emission standards set to come in in 2025, Tony Webber says he and the majority of the automotive industry welcomes them. Absolutely. We've been pushing for improvements in fuel quality and enhancement to engines for over a decade. And this is a very positive step in the right direction. The Chief Executive of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, Tony Webber, ending that report from Oliver Gordon. Well, now to a story that I think will resonate with many tourism operators in Queensland. In summer, South Australia's Riverland region fills with tourists keen to relax by the River Murray. This time last year, though, a slow-moving flood came through, damaging about 3,500 homes, many of them holiday rentals. Tourists stayed away, but businesses are hoping this summer will be different. This report from Angus Randall. The water receded months ago, but Christine Cordo's memories of last summer's Riverland flood will stay with her forever. Where we are standing now, this was completely underwater. You would not have seen any of the infrastructure at all, other than the roof above us. She runs Cordo Vineyard outside Cadell, around two hours northeast of Adelaide. She's still counting the cost of last year's flood that almost inundated her home and destroyed her cellar door. We came out to find water lapping over the top of sandbags and then on further inspection we noticed that the cellar door was starting to be inundated and by about the 28th of December the entire cellar door, the serving area was completely underwater, fridges... Everything in there was destroyed. Cordo Vineyard will keep making wine. Its vines are high above the floodplain, but the cellar door and event space will remain closed. At this particular time and juncture in our life and how the grounds are and all the work and everything it would be to get it back up to snuff, it's a bridge too far for us at the moment. The Riverland starts at the point where SA, Victoria and New South Wales meet, taking in dozens of towns dotted along the Murray for more than 200 kilometres. Any tourist operator who made their money on the river was shut down well before the water peaked last December. Matthew Voigt manages River Murray houseboats. He lost all his bookings from late October until the water started receding in February. Yeah, it's certainly um, something you, you can't imagine until you're actually in that, um, in that situation. Obviously very stressful. Thankfully we did have some help from the government and everybody's come back in droves now. Pamela Canavan is the general manager of tourism organisation Destination Riverland. She spent the summer convincing people it was safe to visit. 
Yeah, that was a, a bit of a challenge for us to get that that message across um, to people who you know weren't weren't actually in the region. Thankfully, um, most of the actual you know towns didn't didn't flood, but for some reason, people seem to have a perception, possibly because there were a lot of flooding events happening around Australia. Pamela Canavan says after a few years affected by COVID and then the floods, it's vital to see tourists returning this summer. And it's been great to see visitation pick up over the last couple of months. You can just see there's definitely a lot more visitors around um, as the weather's starting to warm up. We're seeing boats back on the river. We're seeing people enjoy houseboat holidays. It gives you just that sense of normality, I think, which we've been really craving and looking forward to having back. Tom Freeman is from Woolshed Brewery near the Victorian border, one of the first places in South Australia to see the floodwaters come through. He blames the drop in tourism on how the flood was reported. Even as early as October, when, you know, certain aspects of the press, wasn't you guys, just so quickly, started doing these these real dramatised stories of road closure and, and, and pubs underwater and, and floods and everything like that, Instantly, just it was like a tap being turned off in terms of visitation to the to the area. What sort of importance are you placing on this summer? Well, look, if I was a religious man, I'd be praying for a good one. Put it that way. <laughs> no, we're all very positive though. I think you know we've shown before that the region can bounce back very well. It is obviously very reliant on the river and uh, on the river levels. But as you can see right now, it's looking magnificent. Tom Freeman from Woolshed Brewery, Angus Randall reporting. And that's the world today for this year. Thanks for your company. I'm Samantha Donovan. We wish you a safe and happy Christmas. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.